0: Hey everyone, this is Erica Lucas, your host and founding member of Vest, an organization connecting women across industries, regions, and career levels, so that together we can expedite the pipeline of more women in positions of power and influence. Welcome to another episode of the Vester podcast, where we explore the invisible barriers holding women back in the workplace and share stories of women building power collectively.
1: Most of what we see success like today was not designed with us in mind when it comes to the workplace. It was designed in the 1950s, around the time imposter syndrome sort of, you know, came around. This idea that like you are largely, you're a white man, you have a stay at home spouse and, you know, you get out, you go out and do work right you get to progress and you get to put in the hours and face time whatever it is and there's someone at home to take care of all the other needs we have moved so far beyond that in the 70 plus years but the, the way that our systems are created and reward people in the workplace I still talk to people in companies who'll say like yeah the way to get ahead here is to even today, like during the pandemic, like the, the way to get ahead is to basically be logged in for 10 to 12 hours a day. And I'm like, who, how? Like who is who? Who is someone who is able to log in 10 to 12 hours a day when women do close to 80% of all caregiving work?
0: In this episode, we talked to Ruchika Tulshan, author of Inclusion and Purpose, an intersectional approach to creating a culture of belonging at work. She's also the founder of Candor, an inclusion strategy practice. A former international business journalist, Ruchika is now a regular contributor to the New York Times and Harbor Business Review on workplace equity and inclusion. Ruchika co-wrote the famous article, Stop Telling Women They Have Imposter Syndrome, with Jodi Ann Burry. The article was among the top read articles in Harbor Business Review's history, as well as the top three articles for the publication in 2021. Ruchika is on the Tinker's 50 radar list in LinkedIn's 2022 Top Voices on Gender Equality. She was recently awarded the Jeanette Williams Award by Seattle's Women's Commission for her significant contribution and leadership in advancing women in the region. Ruchika is raising a feminist son who is five and is a Singaporean foodie who has lived in four different countries. For more on Ruchika's bio and show notes, go to wwwvesterco forward slash podcast. This recording was part of a more intimate coaching session with best members and has been repurposed to accommodate this episode.
2: Ruchika, thank you so much for being with
1: us. We're super delighted. Thank you so much, Erica. This is a really special group of women. I wish I had this group um, 10 years ago when I was going through a really hard time in my career and feeling you know, lonely, burnt out, gaslit, didn't have the words to explain what was going on with me. And I wish that I had spent time investing in community. I'm glad that I have in all the years since but I learned the hard lesson of what it's like to think that you can go alone and I'm so strong. And we, Erica, you and I talked about having immigrant moms and sort of being, for me, I'm an immigrant to this country as well. So thinking like, oh, I don't need anyone. Like I got this and uh, going through a really, really tough time. So it's really nice to be in community with other women and, you know, be able to really share openly about some of the real challenges we face.
2: Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, Well, we'll get more into community and the importance of that. But before I do that, can you share more of your story? Like what's typically not included in your bio and even your books that led to where you are today?
1: Yeah, Um, I mean, you know, this is one of the challenges of actually, you know, getting to this more public profile where I've talked a lot about my journey. Um, But I will say I'd say a couple of things that I probably haven't really spoken about generally is, you know, making that transition. So I started, uh, well, firstly, just getting into paid work outside the home. So I was born in a fairly traditional, not, you know, conservative with a small C traditional Indian family um, in Singapore, which, and was born a racial minority in Singapore and then have been a racial minority in almost every other country I've lived in and worked in. So I think that had a very strong impact, you know, being that intersection of gender and race of being my, you know, gender minority and racial minority in every country I've lived in and worked in has had a very significant impact on my sense of self. And, and there's this, there's always been this tension of like, if I work hard and if I get all the degrees and I get all the experience and I get all the titles and, you know, those higher earning titles, then I can really overcome whatever I was, you know, what, however I was born. And especially, you know, never seeing someone who looked like me doing paid work outside the home. So my mother growing up, my mother was a homemaker. Um, I'm the first of my ancestors, my female ancestors to do paid work outside the home, to have a career. So a lot of time spent, like, am I, you know, do I belong here? Am I, you know, was this the right thing? Like, am I doing the right thing? You know, I don't have any role models. Who can I ask for advice? So on one side that, and then on the other saying to myself, like, no, of course, like you work hard, you move forward. Like that's what success, that's what success is going to look like. And you can overcome all the chips that were stacked against you. So I have to say, I felt that tension very acutely, especially early in my career. And one of the sort of mistakes I feel, you know, and speaking of, even as we started off, one of the mistakes I made is not thinking that I needed a support network, not investing in, in a support network. Right. Right. I was like, oh, I have my friends and that's it. But actually making sure that you really spend time connecting with other women. Um, they don't have to be in the same field as you. They don't have to be even in the same city or country as you. Um, and I love, I love the mission of Vest to make it virtual and to have that, you know, a lot of what we find is especially as women sort of quote unquote climb up the ladder pre-COVID, all the events were, you know, around happy hours or very early morning breakfasts or things like that where it was like you had to have significant resources to be able to attend, right? Like either you have childcare or, you know, other, other resources to be able to attend. And I just love the fact that There are more networks like this happening, and I think I think COVID and the pandemic really spurred that on. But um, you know, made a lot of mistakes early in my career. Um, Spent a lot of time gaslighting myself that you know it's just me, like I can't succeed because there's something missing in me. And then really stepping into my story um, when I reached ultimately a point where I was in a in a job where I was bullied um i was the only woman of color in my department um faced really a lot of pushback for being ambitious for being strong and at the same time the narrative of like lean in and like you know women are not confident women don't negotiate i did all those things and i still faced pushback and i have to say that changed the trajectory of my life and again not only had i never seen Women like me do paid work outside the home, but the few that, like over the years, that I started seeing, were in more traditional careers. They were doctors or lawyers or accountants, or you know. And and I was like, if I quit this job in technology, like what do I do? Where do I go? Who do I become? Um, do I go back into journalism or what? And um, yeah, in many ways, had to figure it out and carve the path in many ways for myself and. Yeah, realizing I don't have to go it alone.
2: You know, our topic of this month is is based on your article <laughs> that you co-wrote with Jodi-Ann, and it's an, on imposter syndrome. And <clears throat> I was sharing with you earlier, Ruchika, that even though uh, Gabby and I, and, and many of us, by the way, in this room are doing things, have read books, about the myth of imposter syndrome, about the systems that enable that self-doubt. We know all of it, right? And we know that we, um, that we are very much capable. We know that we've gotten to the places that we've, that we are now because, because of who we are and what, what we're capable of yet. Um, Yet we internalize this imposter syndrome. I mean, even, even myself, I was sharing the story, everyone with Ruchika that, you know, how long have we been to invest, right? Now, almost for two years. And even before that, most of you know that I invest in women-led companies and I believe in, in everything we're talking about. And right now I'm in the process of raising a fund to invest in women-led companies because I believe in it so much. Yet I still feel like an imposter, I still feel like I have to prove myself once over and over again. I still feel inadequate. I still feel like maybe I'm not, I shouldn't be doing this. How do we overcome it then? If we still know everything we need to know and we've read everything we need to read, yet we still somehow figure out a way to internalize it. And, you know, we still overcome, but but we still very much have that sense of, Inadequacy
1: within ourselves. Often, Mm -hmm. it's such a good question and such a hard question. Um, So I will say this: I think until we don't actually name what's going on, we are going to keep succumbing to those systems, and that is something that I was really hoping to do. Definitely with uh, my first book, the Diversity Advantage, which it was like the small book I wrote. It like I was like thinking, oh, I'll write this playbook that collates how companies and the and the data around why organizations need to invest in women um, more more around leadership rather than um, invest in women entrepreneurs but essentially just you know make that investment into women and you know if I write this playbook and I collate all the research like people leaders are going to read and be like yes definitely let's let's go and invest in women let's create a women's leadership program where, We both support women as well as educate men and other people in positions of privilege and power about bias and everything's going to work out great. Guess what happened? Most of the people who read the book identified only as women. Most of the people who were interested or like, or like actually connecting with me were women in middle management or even lower roles saying, thank you for naming this. Now what, like, how do I move beyond this? Right. Right. Um, And then when I would try and connect with male leaders or with people with other positions of privilege and power, including, you know, including successful women, uh, a lot of what I'd hear was like, oh, this book is cute. Like, no, not, no, thanks, not interested. So for me, it was, you know, it was a bit of a big shock because I always thought, oh, well, you know, again, very naive, I guess, but I always thought, oh, you know, people want to do the right thing. They just don't know how. And if I create this book, like that'll, you know, that'll show them how to do it. And I really, I first book talked about like similar to what I inclusion and purpose, which of course I expanded a lot more, but you know, what are, what does inclusive hiring guidelines look like? What does it mean to, to look at pay equality? What does it mean to, um, you know, sponsor women, not just mentor women, but sponsor women, which all this research had, had existed for a while. And I think what the mistake I made and the mistake that I am learning from and that I'm hoping to do different this time is to also equip women with the language to name, hey, this is what's happening to me right now. Because I didn't have that when I was going through a more corporate career, right? I didn't, I didn't have the language to name like, hey, as a journalist, if I have a breaking news story, was back in the day when you you know, used to work for paper for newspapers mostly. And if I have a breaking news story, why does my male colleague's breaking news story get the first page? And that was because my editors didn't want to hurt his feelings or his ego. Right. He his story was less important than mine, but mine was put on page three, which for anyone in journalism, it's like a really big deal, right? You live for these breaking news stories. And we all know in each, in each and every industry, there are examples of what that really glamorous, like opportunity is. And the reality is research shows that women don't get those opportunities as often as men and people of color don't get those opportunities as often those glamorous opportunities as as white people. So there was that and then you know, in the technology industry, hey, like, why am I like, people are overlooking me they're, they're or they're interrupting me or my ideas even hurt or this guy got credit for something I said or my idea. And again, not being able to name it and actually like say like, this is what it is. I think that's what continues to feed into that feeling of like imposter and I don't belong and there's something wrong with me and I need to change. And I also want to say like, these systems are really strong. The systems that were created to, I want to say oppress us for sure, and it might feel very extreme, but the systems that were created to keep women in their place, and unfortunately we're seeing it happen right now on a political level, but the systems that were created to keep us, quote unquote, in our place are really strong. You are swimming in waters where you were not supposed to thrive. And so what does it take to go beyond that, right? What does it take to find that inner strength to say, to to, to really push back against these very, very strong systems, right? And so for me, some of those things are definitely being able to name them. Because if you don't name them, if you can't identify and name them both for yourself, as well as when, you know, others come to you, they're like, hey, this is happening to me. That's something that I think the power of movements, like the Me Too movement, Um, like Black Lives Matter and the movement for racial justice in the workplace. First time ever, first time ever in my life that I heard companies talk about violence against Asian women was last year. AAPI women, when there were a spate of very, very public anti-Asian um, you know, unfortunately, hate crimes against specifically against women. before that, in all these years that I've been doing this work, I'd never heard anyone name it, right. So when you name it, that gives it power, right? And that gives you power because it tells you like, hey, this is what's happening. It's not just me. I can overcome it. So that's that's the number one thing. Number two is, you know, I say this, and I'm gonna like say this until the end of this call and then hopefully, my voice won't reverberate in your dreams and nightmares tonight, but like really build your tribe, you know, and, and have people, again, it doesn't have to be your best friend. It doesn't have to be your mom. It doesn't have to be, you know, people who you've grown up with or like have always called your friends like that, those, that has its place. Right. And, but again, my, I, I love my mom. I'm super close to her until recently. She didn't work outside the home. So when I would come to her and I'd say, hey, you know, mom, I'm facing this issue. She'd say, well, guess like, You're so lucky you got this opportunity. You're living my dream. You're doing things that I could never imagine. Like just power on. You'll be fine. You'll be fine. And so you building a tribe of people whom you can talk to, who can really hold space for you. They don't have to be your best friends at all. Um, I think that is something that helps us overcome. But I will acknowledge it is really hard and it, and there are other ways, you know, rest and recovery, meditation, really taking time to step away when you need to and investing in other areas of your life as well, whatever that is, relationships or exercise or dance or whatever it is for you. That I think is really important too.
2: Thank you. Because I needed to hear everything that you just said, Even no, though we Thank know you. it, it's like it, we need to keep, continue to hear it. Um, I don't want to assume, even though we've shared that article multiple times uh, with our best members in the past, and and even this uh, in our newsletters, we do a newsletter every week, uh, we've shared, but I don't want to assume that everybody has had the opportunity to read it. So what are, can you give us an example of some of the systems that we're talking about that often um, do oppress and do keep women from achieving economic mobility and, and, and mobility yes. in general in the workplace.
1: Yes. And, you know, even since we're talking about the article, like let me go back a little bit with uh, the Imposter Syndrome article. So I have been a contributor to Harvard Business Review for a number of years. Um, and in 2020, when we were getting into lockdown, as, you know, many of us can probably identify with this. I, you know, I'm like, we're living through a once-in-a-lifetime pandemic. I'm I'm based here in the Seattle area. So we were actually the first, you know, to have known cases of COVID here in this area. I'm like, what is happening? Like, are we gonna live through this? Like, you know, health, like, do we have the healthcare systems? Like, what's going on? Like, will I get to see my family? Everyone, like most of my close family and friends live overseas. Like, what's gonna happen? And I keep getting emails and keep getting invites to like webinars for women to overcome their imposter syndrome to be more successful in the workplace. And the cognitive dissonance of like imposter syndrome and confidence and like negotiate your way to success. And like once in a lifetime pandemic and people are dying and like, we don't know like what's coming. It was so real. And and I think I just I hit this point where I was just exhausted. I was like, I, I, I had the, you know, based on the research I've done, and just some of the things I've seen, I was like, I had the foresight to see that this is going to be a really, this is going to be an economic crisis for women, for women of color, for people in healthcare jobs, disproportionately women. It like, it was so clear to me what was coming. And yet, in corporate circles, all I was hearing is, you know, these, or not all, but a lot of what I was hearing is like women's confidence, women's imposter syndrome. So I'm like living through this really, it's like it feels like alternate realities happening at the same time. And so when um in the in the summer of 2020, when Jodi Ann Bury, uh, you know, amazing, amazing leader, a DEI leader here in the Seattle area, but you know, her and I have sort of like had sort of crossed paths, but I said to her, it's like, I need to be in community. Would you feel comfortable meeting outdoors? We met outdoors. I said to her, I've been noodling on this article on imposter syndrome. And just, I I, like, I just don't understand like why even all these months into the pandemic, a lot of the advice geared towards women's leadership is on overcoming imposter syndrome. It just feels weird. So her and I get into this lengthy discussion. We end up deciding like, yeah, we're going to co-write this piece together. I write it for, we write it for HBR. Um, And let me tell you, in all these years that I have been writing for the internet, and remember, I was a journalist. I was writing for the internet before and then, you know, all this while, even as a contributor when I left journalism, I have never had the type of success. I've never had an article go viral the way that article did. And that, to me, tells me the power of doing things collaboratively right the power of putting together our brain power our experiences the research our perspectives different perspectives in some ways and marrying that together and what happens as a result of that collaboration is not always amazing it's not always perfect it's always it's often fraught for two people who have experienced marginalization in different ways and i'm so proud of what we created because i don't think I don't think I could have done it alone. I definitely know I could not have done it alone. So that's so that's something that came, you know, with the article. I As, you know, the, the concept of imposter syndrome, which actually is what jodi uh brought more to the article than I, I hadn't done much research into the history of, of imposter syndrome yet when I was conceptualizing this article, is it's a 50-year-old concept developed by two white women in Atlanta, Georgia, Uh, psychologists who essentially looked at, you know, about a hundred of their high achieving female um, patients. I, you know, it wasn't disaggregated by race, but I assume largely white women who couldn't internalize their success. They kept feeling like, even though they were objectively in objective measures, they were successful. They were uh, making good money and they were in high power jobs and they were ambitious. They always felt like a fraud. And so this phenomenon uh, you know these two psychologists termed the phenomenon imposter phenomenon and 50 years later we're still talking about it we're still saying women have imposter syndrome when actually in all these years the research was so clear that men and women have it in equal measures right but yet it has been pathologized in women it has been really created as this narrative of like you are not Good enough. You are lacking something. And so if there was something that I hope that we can all take away from these danger, like truly dangerous narratives, is that we can find a way to put it aside and say, no, we have power, we have agency, and what we bring to the table is really important and necessary.
2: What is our role in? Dismantle I mean, because one thing is to deal and uh, with our own uh, uh, feelings yes. and emotions, and another thing is to help dismantle those systems. So what is our role in doing that? And to your point, how do we do it together?
1: Yeah well, I, I hope you I hope all of us understand, you know and kind of based on some of the points I made earlier, we are operating in systems that weren't designed with us in mind. For most successful, quote unquote, corporate success people, and as a result, like even in, in, uh, you know, extrapolating that into entrepreneurs who are raising funding and who want to create the next big business, most of what we see success like today was not designed with us in mind when it comes to the workplace, right? It was designed in the 1950s, around the time imposter syndrome sort of, you know, came around. Uh, a few years after that but it, it really this idea that like you you know you are largely you're a white man you have a stay-at-home spouse and you know you get out you go out and do work right you get to progress and you get to put in the hours and face time whatever it is and there's someone at home to take care of all the other needs and the reality now is, I mean, we have moved so far beyond that in the seventy-plus years. But the the way that our systems are created and reward people in the workplace, I mean, I, I still talk to leaders. I still talk to people in companies who say, like, yeah, the way to get ahead here is to, even today, like during the pandemic, like the the way to get ahead is to basically be logged in for ten to twelve hours a day. And I'm like. How? like who's who who is someone who is able to log in 10 to 12 hours a day when women do close to 80 percent of all caregiving work right? and it doesn't mean you you need to have small children. I mean caregiving really runs the gamut, including caregiving for yourself. And I just it, it's absurd, right? Like these systems were not designed for us. So imagine what we have to overcome to be able to get ahead. Now, what gives me hope and what gives me some sort of, you know, like this is where we're heading is A, I think more of us are seeking entrepreneurship as a route, right? And I think that's really positive. I'll be honest, if I did not work for myself, I don't know if I would be able to find the right, you know, just the right, I will not say balance. Like I know we, there's a lot of like work-life balance, but really the integration that I need to be able to show up in some sort of without, you know, my head spinning the the entire time. I don't think without being an entrepreneur, I don't think it would be possible for me. And I know that's different for everyone, but I had to be very clear about what that meant for me. And that was hard. You know, my last job that I left, um, I had stock options. I had good health care. I had all these benefits, et cetera, et cetera. But even then, I had to make a choice for my own mental health and prioritize that. So I think that part of it is that. I think the other thing that gives me hope is as more of us are able to build coalition with each other and help each other thrive and succeed, I think we are creating those workplaces that look different from the time that we probably entered. I, I do feel really, really optimistic about that. And I think as more of us name these systems right like that like you know a lot of the things like if you speak to women who started their careers 30 40 years ago 50 years ago they will say like it was totally par for the course for you know people to make sexist or racist jokes or um you know it was totally par for the course for you just had to like deal with you know if if the men got ahead and now I think we have the words to name what's going on and that's how we can dismantle it together
2: Absolutely. And there are questions already coming in. Today. Yeah, I see that. Please prioritize those. Sky, I believe you were raising your hand. So I want to give it over to you. Oh, I just had a quick question because it was interesting to
3: hear the, the, the comment about the um, to get ahead, you need to be logged in all the time. And I was curious if that was a one-off comment or if that was a research like across the board, like, you know, if everyone's saying that or if a few people, because I yeah, that that's my question.
1: So, Sky, say a little more. Do you um, are you are you saying like, does research show that to get ahead in organizations, you need to log in?
3: Yeah, because I'm always. I mean, I'm I'm a big sort of proponent of this thinking about how do you work smart, not hard, kind of a thing. Totally. Not saying you shouldn't, but I sometimes I struggle a little bit because I hear a lot of like oh, I work so, so, so hard and I don't get ahead. And I'm and I'm not saying it's your fault because you're not working smart. But I also think there's this balance between figuring out how do we, like sometimes it, men or women, you know, working really hard isn't sometimes the most strategic choice. Um, so I'm kind of curious. And that's, again, not a blame. It's just a, a question of how much is it actually that and how much is it this balance of those two axes, if you will.
1: Yeah, and so I think it's the perception. I think the perception of people in leadership thinking like, hey, you're on all the time is something that really shifts that. I think the reality and the existence of gender bias cannot be overstated, right? So I'll give you an example. So one thing that research does show and prove is women get assigned and also take on, right, expectations, much more office housework. So this can be, yes, it can be things like, you know, that collate with, or you know, housework like cleaning up after meetings or ordering the lunch or whatever it is loading the dishwasher in the office but especially now if we go into the pandemic and just in general it's work that needs to be done keeps the lights on but doesn't lead to promotion and research shows disproportionately that's completed by women and people of color and the flip side of that right and can be like serving on committees in academia it could be mentoring the interns it could be you know in in when i've when i've spoken to teams of of or women software engineers many will say it's things like not writing the code but often it's like creating the emotional sort of connection between people to make sure like everyone's working smoothly but the guys get ahead because they did all the coding instead of me kind of coming in and making sure like things are running smoothly from like a people perspective And uh, research shows that men um, disproportionately get assigned the glamour work, right? The high visibility roles where everyone's like very like in, you know, it's very clear that they're doing this important work. And so I I am a big proponent like you of working smart. And I actually think we all need to, right? Like I was speaking to someone in Europe earlier this week, someone in France, and she's like, we have a 35 hour work week. Most companies I know, are now talking about doing a four-hour work week and really making it work. And here in the United States, like that's just if 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 you work for a company that has a four-hour work week, it's like, whoa, like. Psh. So I'm a big proponent of working smart, not hard. And I think part of how we can get ahead and be more successful is definitely talking about our successes, being able to really, um, you know, show up. In those very important spaces and make sure that we have people with privilege and power sponsoring us to be there, right? Whether it's those high visibility opportunities, whether it's those, you know, big roles or big projects, but we can't do it alone. We got to be, we have to do it together and we have to make sure that we have people showing and practicing allyship, especially people with, in positions of privilege and power.
2: (laughs) Absolutely. Um, there's another question, Um, Sheena, and I am going to encourage, hey, listen, we're a lot of us are introverts. And I understand if you don't want to unmute yourself and ask the question. But if you you want to just ask it, this is a safe space, uh, unmute yourself and then ask it. But I'm going to ask this for you, Sheena. Um, She says, from a journalist perspective, how do we break through the clutter with our perspective as women in the workplace? How do we how can we create long-term conversation beyond just International Women's Day and Women's History Month? That's a great, yeah. Do
1: you do you want to add anything to that?
2: Hi, well, so I'm in
3: I'm in PR. Yes, yeah, <laughs> and, and I work with a lot of women-owned businesses, and it, you know, it's a struggle if there's not some additional news peg or angle mm-hmm. to generate interest in just our story as women. And I'm just curious if you have ideas on how to approach that.
1: This is so frustrating. It is so hard because it's that delicate balance of like, it's that delicate balance of like, yes, it's important to name some of the challenges that women, women of color, people of color, people with disabilities, people with other marginalized identities face. It's important to talk about that. And it's important to be seen and recognized for being just a great business owner or just a great leader or a great lawyer or whatever the the you know the story is. I don't have a great answer about what is the way forward. I think I think one of the things is the media industry is woefully, woefully homogenous, right? I mean, especially from a racial perspective but also the decision makers around the people, you know, assigning the media stories, the ones deciding what gets the most. Um, I remember one of the things that was really painful for me as I started writing for the New York Times, you know, super, as a, as a former journalist, it was like the thing to do. And it was a newsletter um, called, in her words, specifically focused on women in the workplace, the gender in general, in society. And I was kind of going to do much more of their women in the workplace coverage. And uh they shut it down. Right. At In like in the middle of a once in a lifetime pandemic where gender to me was the biggest story of the day. Right. It's the biggest story of the last few years in my mind. Right. Who's disproportionately impacted? Who's disproportionately sick? Who has the least access to, you know, the th- the systems that we need to get out of this. And yet, you know, the media makers, the decision makers decided like, nope, that's not going to be a story. I think, again, for me, I think that while those days of, you know, whatever it is, International Women's Day or Women's History Month, and all of those things are important, I'm starting to see in my own work, when I get asked to talk, when I get asked to speak, as more of us have books coming out, as more of us really take ownership of our own thought leadership and our own story, I'm starting to see more appetite, even for my own, like when I'm coming, when I'm being asked to come in to speak in organizations to move beyond just, let's just only book you in March or only book you like, oh, you know, Asian American month or whatever it is. And I think that there's been a lot more off that, but I, but I want to acknowledge that change is slow.
3: Thank you. And, and, and I'd love to see a space where it doesn't have to be that dramatic angle every day. Like how do we support each other and how do we elevate? I would argue that a lot of the male focused news is very
1: uninteresting. Yeah. (laughs) So you're um, so right. You're so right. I want to validate that. That is exactly right. And being in newsrooms and having to advocate for those stories. I mean, it plays out exactly the way it plays out in society, in the newsroom, right? Like it, you really have to be twice, thrice, 10x as good to be considered half as good to deserve a story. And that's, that's really hard to see. Thank you. So
2: there's a great question in the chat from Christina. But before I hand it over to Christina and ask that question, I want to also highlight Natalie's comment on the chat. She says, I love that we're exploring together, this together, the notion of naming it. I have felt... I have felt pressure to feel that I have imposter, yes. sh- imposter syndrome in women's groups and conferences, when I didn't really feel like an imposter at the time. I've been reading the book Radical Candor. This is why I'm reading. I Kim Scott. Yeah,
1: yeah. she's great. Has- yeah, she's great.
2: Yeah, and it has prompted thoughts around imposter syndrome. How Radical Candor culture can eradicate this, caring personally, challenging directly. Curious, what your your thoughts are on calling people out on the feelings less than. Feel uh, sorry. Uh, I don't feel I less than. Not, yeah, yeah. Calling out on the feelings less than or inadequate and moving beyond that. But before I do that, let me just say, and I, uh, I feel like I should be your publicist. Uh, oh
1: my goodness! Oh, thank you, because I'm terrible at this. I will tell you this. This Is let me. Part of success is like finding the people who have the skill set that you don't have. And this is one I do not, so thank you.
2: But consider me part of your publicist. Uh, pub- <laughs> thank but, you, Erica. Um, <laughs> Natalie, Kim Scott, the author of Radical Candor yes. is one of the people that, that, um, gave, uh, Ruchika's book, a thumbs up and you should, and I, I, I
3: had have no idea because I haven't read it yet. So
2: yeah. great. I'm going yeah. s- to send this to everyone. Uh, we're going to send this to everyone. So you all have it. I can't recommend this book enough. We Thank should all you. Um, but anyway, what, so what
1: is your answer to that? Uh, yeah. Richard? Yeah. You know, So I really, I love Kim and Kim's new book, her next book is really called, it's around creating more just racially just and gender balanced, you know, workplaces. It's called Just Work. And one of the things I really appreciate about just the way Kim lives her life is she's really focused on creating a world, right? Not just workplaces, but a world Where she uses the privilege and power that she has, she's obviously extremely successful, but really to elevate women of color. And this, I saw this, you know, with her. She started. She both co-wrote a book and started a company led by a black woman, right? And so much of her work is is focused now on using the success and the importance of radical candor. To for us to identify and name that the biggest systems of oppression we're facing today are really racism and that intersection between race, racism, and, and gender bias. So I think her I think her radical counter framework is obviously excellent. We talk a lot about it during feedback. I think a big part of being able to challenge these notions of imposter syndrome is to name the systems, right? Like you name the system, like, hey, this is what we're operating in. And actually, Erica, I recognize I never really fully completed your question, right? But what we're facing, the systems of oppression, we're facing racism, um, sexism, hyper greedy capitalism, which is extremely exploitative, um, uh, systems that don't value, quote unquote, women's work, and especially caregiving work, which we know disproportionately are com- is completed by um, women. And then and then on top of that, systems that penalize people um, and, and are just extremely oppressive to people who have disabilities, mental health challenges. So, I mean, I could go on, but this is what we're facing. So, uh, Natalie, to answer your question, I think part of it is definitely naming like, hey, you're operating in the system. Like I can imagine, it makes sense to me that you feel like you don't belong, right? And this is, this is the framing I use when I talk about it because exactly like you, exactly what sparked this article or even the thought behind this article is like, hey, like what I'm dealing with and that fear and challenge and whatever it is and anxiety I'm facing right now is a pandemic. It's not imposter syndrome. And I certainly didn't feel that way even when I was in organizations. And one of the things that I found really valuable was saying, was changing the narrative, at least for me, from lack of confidence or Ponsor syndrome or whatever the words you want to use, to yeah, I don't belong because I wasn't meant to belong, right? The system was not designed for me. And then moving from there. So it's just sort of wrap up, and I know there are other questions. I think the, the 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 way to be really open and honest about this and challenge someone by caring personally is saying. It makes sense that you are feeling these feelings, right? Because those feelings are valid. And have you considered how you are operating in a system that hasn't been designed for you? Right? Have you considered what could be causing and leading to these feelings? I mean, one of the one of the big harmful effects of the lean in movement and narrative and there's research to prove why it's so harmful. One of the big impacts of the Lean In movement was it put all the pressure and all the, it really invalidated the the gender bias that women were facing in the workplace, right? So it, it blamed you for not leaning in and for not raising your hand for those big projects and for saying like, hey, I need a break. Like I've, I'm either going through a major health thing or like I've just had a child or like someone in my family needs care or whatever it is. It was your fault that you were not raising your hand. That's what the lean in sort of narrative and other related narratives did. And I think where there is opportunity is to say like those feelings of, of needing to, it's totally human. Or those feelings of either not feeling like you're adequate because of what's happening in these systems that were created. And how do we now move beyond that? Absolutely. We have one
2: more question in the chat and then I'm going to give it to Dia and Shannon, uh, who also raise their hand. Uh, Christina says, How did you take concrete steps to build your support system outside of your immediate family and friends? What are some <laughs> of the lessons learned? What to do, what not to do, and how do you advocate for yourself without
1: presenting as annoying? Mm, such great questions. I'll be I'll try and be quick because I do want to get to everyone's questions. So one of the concrete steps I did to build my support system literally was attending more events like this and, and creating network circles like this. And one of the things I'm proud of, although speaking of the time of the life of, of my life that I was in, when I left my last corporate career and felt really lonely, I did start a women's happy hour and I start and I actually co-organized it with three other women in very different fields, by the way. None of us were in the same field none of us were going through the same exact same things in our lives but we came together and we said let's organize a happy hour which again now in in speaking of lessons learned realize that there are other ways to gather that do not have to be you know that time of life or, or that time of the evening and around alcohol and things like that um so really taking concrete steps meant saying to myself like I need a network I need to meet other professional women in a variety of careers and have a real honest discussion about like what's going on, what am I facing and all of that, right? Um, I would say one of the, I think when we think about advocating for ourselves without consulting as annoying, I will say this. I have in all the years I've done the work that I do and different types of what I do, different, you know, I'm a speaker, I'm an author, I'm a writer. I've taught um, at a university, at Seattle University. I have never met a woman who has advocated for herself enough. It has not happened to date. Not once. So I can assure you that even when you think you're being annoying, even if you feel like, oh, this is way out of my comfort zone, remember, in because the system and really there is so much good research around the gender schema, right? The norms of how women are supposed to present as humble and like not talking about yourself and this and that it will always feel uncomfortable if you have been so deeply socialized to, to behave like that and to operate in that system. And again, important to name it and then move beyond it. And I can tell you, I was raised in such a strong, in, in, such a, in, in an environment where the gender schema was so strong because it was compounded by the fact that, you know, I lived in Asia. I was born in an Indian family and I had never seen anyone who worked outside the home who looked like me. So there was a very very narrow definition of what it meant to show up as a woman in society. So even today, sometimes when I'm asked to speak, there is a moment where I'm like, uh, "Are you sure, me? Are you sure? Like, how do I do this?" And then pushing past that and saying, "Like, listen, no man, no man, no man would ever ask that question. Certainly, none I have met." So I hope that helps.
2: A hundred percent. And I am sorry, I I skipped Casey's questions. Adding to Christina's questions, how can you have a conversation with somebody you work for or work with whose actions make you feel like you're aren't good enough or don't belong?
1: Yeah. It is never your fault. I think this is one of the challenges that I face that I get asked a lot, you know, like, what can I do? It's my, it's my responsibility to fix this it's not your responsibility to fix this right and part of I think if I could go back in time and if I could be and and now you know I, I'm still by the way it's not foolproof like I might be an entrepreneur I might be you know I, I might I might have this book that is doing well and I'm still put in situations sometimes where people don't advocate for me or they you know or they put me down I mean it doesn't it's not like it goes away right for women it doesn't really go away for women of color. It doesn't go away. And part of, I think, me finding my voice has been, again, being able to name system. I know I'm saying this so many times in your life, but I, when I'm trying to bring up situations of bias, I will always say, listen, I believe, and back to, and, and I think the radical uh, candor framework is really helpful in this. I believe your intentions are good. I really do. I'm, I'm sure you didn't mean it that way. But what I heard, wh- how this came across, how, what your action did is this. And that's been one of the ways that I've um, brought up and been able to like, you know at least bring up situations of bias that doesn't always work. And I wish I could say like here's this like five-step program where it always works. It's foolproof. it's not, there's none because dealing with human beings there is going to be a lot of unpredictability. but I have found some success with saying, I'm sure your intentions are good. Here's how it landed for me. Um, And then the last part of this is, again, finding people who can practice allyship, right? People who are in your corner with more privilege and power. Again, not a foolproof system, not everyone. Most of the times, the people who truly practice allyship. And I always use allyship as a verb, not a noun, right? I don't believe anyone is fully an ally. There's no such thing. I think people make choices to practice allyship in the moment. And, and often they're not the people with a big ally, I'm an ally badge. They're the people who in the moment, you'll notice them in the meetings. They you know, they amplify other, especially women, and people of color's points. They're the ones who really talk about how these systems show up. Um, and those are the people that I look for to make sure, especially if I'm bringing up situations of bias that I've faced.
2: Absolutely. And I just want to say because we are going to run out of time. This is a wonderful conversation. We are. Yes. Please, please do read this book because she talks a lot about um it, it, what I love about this book, it it doesn't just talk about what everything that we're discussing here. It gives you actionable items to do. Like how do you overcome this? How do you have these uncomfortable conversations? How do you change systems? How do you, you. hire um, you know, intentional. Um, so anyway, I, I'm i going to send this to you and then, then maybe we'll, do, we'll do a book club uh, to make sure. That- <laughs> uh, yeah, I'm going to turn it over to you.
1: Hi, Rachika, thank you so much for being here. I can uh, affirm that representation matters and I'm glad it's you who's doing this. Um, My question, your last comment kind of shaped, kind of already answered my question, but um, how do you identify uh, males with demonstrating the traits of the allyship and is it important to be intentional uh, about having that in your tribe? Yes, yes and yes. It's really nice to meet you, Pia, and indeed, I think it is really important to have men in your corner and in your tribe. And we can't do this alone. I wish I could say that I wrote inclusion on purpose for women and women of color. I did. I really hope that people who read it find themselves reflected. And my true, honest purpose is that I want more people with privilege and power to read it and say, like, this is what people are facing. I am so I'm so shocked and I'm so saddened because again and again what I find is largely people in leadership positions and people with privilege and power in society they don't want to do wrong they don't want to cause harm they don't want to intentionally be awful there are some people there are people let's not let's not sugarcoat that there are people who are toxic but largely what I found is people want to do the right thing they often don't know how and so I think finding people who are in your tribe, who want to do the right thing, who can at least spend some time building the self-awareness, which by the way, all of us need to, including myself. It's not like I was born and I was like, oh, because I'm a woman, like I'm not going to have gender bias. I was raised in the same gender schema, right? I have certainly been socialized to believe like a woman who is more confident or more dominant, you know, isn't necessarily like a nice person, right? I too have subscribed to the gender schema of like, oh, this person isn't likable. This woman is not likable because she's dominant or she's strong. And then add to that racial bias, right? Like some of the some of the really harmful tropes we know different women of color, different groups and ethnicities of women of color face. And I have had to decolonize myself too. And I talk about this in the book. So I really think that it is important to both build that self-awareness in ourselves, but as well as find people who are also doing the work and on the journey with us. And again, that may not look like what you think it looks like, right? It it may not be the person who's like marching at the women's march and like hosting, you know, like a black square which on social media and whatnot. It can often be someone who, again, in meetings, shows up and says, Hey, Dia, like, I, I think that was a great point Dia made in this meeting. I want to add to that, right? Amplifying your voice. It could be someone who, you know, says to you, takes you to the site and say and says, you know, hey, I know you're negotiating a salary raise. Uh, Just wanted to let you know my salary is this, or like, you should ask for this, or like, here's how you navigate this tough new client. Those are what I mean when I, th- that's what I mean when I talk about practicing allyship. It's not who you are, it's what you do. And I think we all need that in our tribe as well. We need people like that in our tribe.
4: I don't know if we have enough time because I was going to move us from generalities to ask for specific personal coaching on an issue that I feel like I've been catfished. And so I'm relatively new to the firm that I'm now with and we're getting ready to do profile pictures for the website and a relatively innocuous situation, but I'm finding that it's bothering me mm-hmm. the, um, parameters they've put on what's the appropriate dress what's all of those kind of, you know, this is what mm-hmm. you need to look like mm-hmm. for what we want to portray. Um, mm-hmm. And I'm really struggling with, is it an issue that's worth bringing up? Is it an issue that um, is appropriate for me to bring up in this, given my tenure, all of those kinds of things? And so I'd love to hear from you just like, how do you move past that? Um, I don't deserve to have this conversation all of those kinds of, of things around these kind of topics.
1: Shannon, thank you for asking this question because if it's bothering you, I can bet you it's bothering other people. And that's what's been, you know, for a lot of the people who have studied, especially racial bias in, in you know, and, and come up with academic research for it, who have been a proponent of like, we need to study whether it's gender bias, whether it's racial bias, and faced a lot of like, oh, it's just you, it's just in your head, like, we're not going to fund your research for this. What you will find is largely, once they were able to push past that, and, you know, and face so many barriers and push past it, it really ended up being everyone, or a very, very vast majority of people who said, yes, this exists, I face this too. And it's often that challenge and that pain of being the first and and being the person who brings it up, right? And at the end of the day, I can bet you that there are other people who are taking issue with this. i definitely say that it is worth bringing up. I think, again, being able to identify who are the people who are going to practice allyship and who will really listen. And again, going from the framing of of inquiry, right? I'm sure this was intended in very good intentions. We want to have a website that looks blah, blah, blah. And here's how this is landing for me. Is there a different way to approach this? Um, I think it is absolutely worth bringing up.
5: I do want to say thank you so much for, you know, being who you are. It's extremely important to have a name to something that we have felt in the past and to feel that we're not alone. I think that I, I absolutely just having the name and hearing other ladies feeling the same way I've felt in the past empower me. And we need to do more of those meetings because, like, I bet on tomorrow's meeting, um, that I will be sitting in a table uh, with a bunch of all white men. Um, I'd be feeling differently and I won't feel as an imposter. Um, as a last comment, I found myself, and uh, I remember about five years ago watching football Monday night so I can be prepared for my corporate meeting Monday, I mean, Tuesday morning. And um, that is how imposter I felt. And I'm not from this country. I mean, I, I wasn't born and raised here. So football is not even, it wasn't on my radar. And now I'm like I was so dumb. I didn't I didn't need to know the bigger players and what happened Monday night to fit in in my Monday morning yes. corporate meeting. So thank you, thank you for what you what you do. You did
1: not, and you were not stupid. You were in an environment that didn't make you feel like you belonged. And and now I can see that you're changing that, and that's amazing. Right. We all need to do that for each other. We need to. We need to hold our space for each other because it is so easy to fall prey to like, oh, it's not me who's good enough and I need to do all these things. But you are, all of you, you're enough. You're showing up for yourselves and you're showing up for each other. I mean, that is so powerful.
0: If you enjoyed this episode, leave us a review and subscribe to our podcast for future episodes. You can also join the conversation by becoming a best member. Go to www.vestor.co and apply today.